The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the continued barrage of missiles on civilian infrastructure from Russia, talk about the Kremlin using the offer of free IVF to persuade more people to join the military, and consider the dismantling of the Catherine the Great monument in Odessa. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 29th of December, day 309. Today, to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our assistant foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, and Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva. I started by asking Venetia for the latest news from Ukraine. This morning, we've seen a massive bombardment by Russia of cruise missiles across Ukraine. Um, More than 120 missiles landing in cities all around the country, Kyiv, Kharkiv, Lviv. Lviv, about 90% of the power is said to be out this morning. In Kyiv, about 50% of the power. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, Russia is targeting critical civilian infrastructure, energy infrastructure mainly. This is said to be the largest bombardment since the beginning of the war. And that's quite something because we have seen some massive bombardments over the last few weeks. So it shows that Russia is not letting up with that particular tactic of trying to freeze Ukrainians throughout the winter. We've had some reports of people being injured. No casualties yet, as far as I'm aware. Lots of missiles have been shot down by Ukraine. There's some suggestion that one of the missiles used by Ukraine to shoot down a Russian missile landed in Belarus. That's being investigated right now. Our listeners will remember that some shell detritus landed in Poland a couple of weeks ago and almost caused a major international incident. wasn't clear if Russia had fired a a missile into Poland and had caused a sort of escalation of the war. But in the end, it was figured out that it was a Ukrainian missile that was trying to shoot down a Russian missile. Looks like that's what's happened here again in Belarus. But we'll see more details emerge on that over the course of today. And we've also had blasts in cities such as Odessa, Zutomir. So really a sort of state of alert across the whole of Ukraine today. I was just going to ask you if you had any further updates, I believe, in regards to the Russian airbase that we heard from Dom about an attack yesterday. Uh, Are there any updates for us today? Yeah, so we heard about, we've we've seen Ukraine trying to target target one of Russia's biggest airbases towards the west of the country. It's called Engels Airbase and it's in Saratov. It's quite far from the Ukrainian border, so it is impressive when Ukraine manages to hit it, which it did on Boxing Day, um, and three Russian soldiers were killed. Apparently, there was no damage to Russian planes, if you want to take Russia's word for it, that is. And today, we've heard that Russia's air defense sirens have been sounded over that area again. There's pictures and some videos uh, circulating on Twitter showing uh, sort of streams of smoke in the sky, which suggests that something was shot down. We haven't seen any reports of damage or anyone killed or injured again today, but Natalia might have some more updates for you on that particular thing. But it really shows that Ukraine is trying to 
where it can, um, you know, fight back against Russia's ability to bomb the country so heavily. They're not targeting civilian infrastructure. It should be emphasized. This is very much military infrastructure. We don't know the scale of the damage that's being caused, but clearly they are increasingly able to reach quite far behind Russia's borders. Thank you, Venetia. I believe there's also been a statement put out by the head of the Ukrainian military agency this, today on how the fighting has hit a dead end between Russia and Ukraine. Could you elaborate on that a bit further and tell us more about what that statement means? Yeah, so Kirill Brudinov um, was speaking to the BBC and essentially just said that fighting has reached a dead end, which is something that we've heard from quite a few people now and that we're seeing increasingly when we report stuff on the ground. The most of the fiercest fighting now in Ukraine is concentrated around Bakhmut in the, uh, in the Donetsk and then some sort of areas in the Luhansk region, so very much to the east of Ukraine where Russia is trying to consolidate its ability to hold on to these areas that it tried to annex parts of in 2014, has been trying to annex ever since. The fighting in the south seems to have calmed down more or less, although obviously Kherson is still under bombardment, heavier some days than others. But they've really, the, the, the sort of the front lines have really solidified. And that's down to two things, according to the Ukrainian spy chief head. One is that Russia is really running out of trained soldiers that's something we've heard lots about um, over the past few months. There's some rumours, which Natalia might be able to get into more later, that there's a fresh mobilisation announcement that might come in January. But Russia is really struggling with getting trained soldiers through the pipeline. People are dying very quickly and they're not able to be replaced with anyone who's skilled enough to find ways to break through this stalemate. Bakhmut in particular has been called a meat grinder. Hundreds of people are dying there every day, Ukrainian and Russian. On the Ukrainian side, it's reached a bit of a stalemate because they just don't have the weapons required to further push back the Russians or create another break. The The big breaks that we have seen in the last few months have been a lot to do with Russians pulling back suddenly and Ukrainians taking very, very good advantage of that. They did push quite clearly around Kherson to recapture that, but around Kharkiv, that was a bit of a rout. But, you know, Ukraine needs more sophisticated weapons both to protect the cities that it does hold from Russian bombardment and then to force some kind of break through those solidified front lines. So I think he's probably right when he says that the war is at a dead end until you know, Russia gets a lot more troops and is able to push back in some significant way or Ukraine gets more sophisticated weapons and is able to create a break in that sense. Thank you for that, Venetia. I know that you're very busy on the foreign desk today. So just before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to mention or discuss? I think that's it from the Ukraine frontline updates. And I know Natalia has lots of good stuff to share with you, so I'll hand over to her. Lovely. Thank you so much, Venetia. So moving on to you, Natalia, I believe you filed a story yesterday for The Telegraph that was really fascinating about how Russian frontline soldiers are being offered free IVF. What can you tell us about that? Hi Claire and hi everyone. Yes, that's definitely has been one of the most uh, one of the most bizarre stories that I've I've had to write in the past eight months on, on the on the war. Apparently, there was a movement to get Russian soldiers, like Russian career soldiers, and everyone who's been mobilized, a um, uh, discounts or even a free pass to first freeze and store their sperm and then get subsidies for IVF for their families. Apparently. Um, 
a number of families have petitioned one Russian lawyer, quite a prominent one. And he yesterday quoted an official letter that he received from the Russian health ministry that confirmed that the Russian government has indeed allocated the necessary funds that would allow for anyone who's been called up to Ukraine to be able to walk into a fertility clinic, uh, freeze their sperm for free and use it at a later date when they want. And um, it might sound like an odd story, it really is, but it uh, comes among uh, intensive discussions in Russian society about the price that Russian soldiers are paying in Ukraine. And uh, Vladimir Putin has famously promised uh, high pay to mobilized men, to volunteers. One of the tools that the Russian government is using to lure Russians into this war is huge payments that would be equivalent to their 6-12 month income if you live in rural Russia and different perks. So, for example, Russian soldiers have been promised that they would get a grace period, period of their loans, or if they had criminal proceedings against them in the pipeline, those procedures would be halted. So free IVF and free uh, freeze your sperm uh, campaigns, that's definitely, that, that just comes one one of those perks package. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. Thank you for that, Natal. I'm wondering, would it be correct to conclude that this sort of speaks to Russia's increased frantic desperation to get soldiers on the front line? They're kind of presenting this as a... A, a peace offering or a bribe to get people on board and it speaks to how desperate they are for soldiers well yes um in a way it definitely is because what we saw in recent months we saw kremlin officials telling russian soldiers you go and fight for russia as they describe it and we're going to take care of your families you're going to get a nice paycheck you're going to get perks you're not going to have to pay off your mortgage while you're out fighting but what we've been increasingly seeing from the regions are reports that those payments are either they never came or it was just a fraction of what the soldiers have been promising. And uh, apparently soldiers or and men who've been there still getting notifications from their bank asking for repayments. So it is one of those perks. It's like one of those gestures that the government is making to trying to say that, you know, we're serious about it. We're not going to forget you, even if it comes to something as bizarre but on the other hand something as important because obviously IVF is a way to start a family and obviously a lot of people would love to do that and it's quite an expensive procedure and in Russia people do get subsidies for IVF you can apply for one but it's quite laborious in terms of paperwork and um, if you don't qualify or like if you're not up online like the waiting time could be quite long yeah really interesting stuff and Venetia mentioned earlier that there have been rumours that there will be another conscription drive. Can you tell us a bit more? What do we know about these rumours? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's important to say uh, that the mobilisation was declared by Vladimir Putin. He signed a decree declaring a partial mobilisation. And I don't think you need to be a lawyer to figure out that if there is a decree in declaring something, there has to be a decree a decree to end something or to cancel it out, to say, hello, we've done this mobilization, that's, that's enough, you know, everyone is going home. And uh, technically, the mobilization is over. What we are hearing from, from Russian regions is that no one is getting conscripted, but there is no decree in place. And Vladimir Putin has been asked about it repeatedly, actually. He was asked 
why don't you sign a decree that would cancel and end the mobilization? And Vladimir Putin, being a trained lawyer himself, somehow said that he has talked to his legal advisors and who said it's not necessary. And um, one Russian lawmaker, quite a prominent one, recently famously said that a law doesn't matter and the president's word has more weight. So if the president says that the mobilization is over, it really is. But it leaves, obviously, it leaves this big, uh, this big legal loophole. And because we don't have a decree to formally end the mobilization, a second wave could essentially start at any moment. Uh, they are not, they wouldn't even have to declare it. They won't have to go through the motions. They won't have to, you know, announce it on TV, explain themselves uh, to Russian population what they will have to do. They will have to like quietly pick up those files and, and start uh, calling up men again. And obviously, this is something that can be expected in the light of uh, heavy fighting in Bakhmut, as, as Venetia has mentioned, which has taken in a lot of Russian manpower. I wouldn't expect it immediately. Obviously, we're heading to New Year's Eve, which is the biggest holiday in, in this part of the year. Uh, it's quite unlikely that uh, the Kremlin is going to try and spoil people's holiday by like snatching away their men on, on Christmas night, on, on New Year's Eve. Uh, but it's something that I would look out for and and, and ex- expect that it might be happening in January and February as Russia would definitely be running out of uh, manpower on, on the Eastern Front specifically. And if Putin does announce another mobilization drive, is it fair to say that that will perhaps tip things more in favor of Russia if, if that's the thing that's holding them back? Um what we have seen throughout this conflict is that Putin has crossed so many red lines or so much of what we thought were the red lines, including an overt aggression against another country, bombing civilian targets, perpetrating grisly murders and massacres like the one we saw in Bucha, uh, and the mobilization. Uh, but again, I think if they decided to go through with the second one, it would be much easier to pull out, just to pull off, just because... They will not have to go through all of the legal motions. And Putin wouldn't even have to address the nation, as he did in September, to explain himself. Because it would be like, oh, you know, I, I mentioned that we need more soldiers and now we're just going to do it. So in terms of the Russian public, there's basically nothing that, that constrains him. I mean, uh, it's been a while since we've seen any major protests. There was a bit of that in the early days of the mobilization. And in the regions where we saw protests, which were mostly uh, protests, uh, women's protests, we saw that uh, military recruiters markedly toned down their activity. There were fewer men conscripted from those regions. And obviously, this, this piecemeal strategy has allowed the Kremlin to, um, you know, snatch out the men from the regions which were, let's put it, more docile. And, uh, you know, go slow on places like Moscow or Yakutia, where people are uh, likely to protest and be outspoken about it. Thank you for that, Natalia. They're really interesting. Moving on, I believe you've, you're writing a story today for The Telegraph on how Ukrainians in Odessa have voted to tear down a statue of Catherine the Great. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about the history and symbolism of this monument? Yeah, I thought that's quite a remarkable story because this, that is not just a monument and it's not about, uh, you know, people getting too emotional and uh, dismantling a statue of something that symbolizes something that they hate. Um, Odessa is a very special Ukrainian city. It has it has its own identity. I would say it's 
it's one of the Ukrainian cities with an identity which is neither Russian nor Ukrainian. If you meet anyone from Odessa, they will tell you, I'm Odessite. They, for many years, people have identified themselves as from being, uh, as being from Odessa rather than from Ukraine or being a Russian speaker. Uh, before the war, it was predominantly a Russian-speaking city. It's a city on the Black Sea that has been known for its for its trade, for its uh, beautiful sandy beaches. Ethnically, it's always been uh, a bit of a melting pot. Um, we're talking about Jews, Armenians, Greeks, Russians, and Ukrainians. And you know, if you take this melting pot, it was never it it never identified itself itself with Russia or Ukraine. Um, despite the fact that the city came to be known what what we know thanks to Catherine the Great, who, uh, who if I can put it this way, like put it under the swing. Obviously, there's a lot of discussion about what what happened to Odessa. It was a settlement. It was essentially a village. It was never a, a big city. And um, in the final two um, centuries of the Russian Empire, it became a commercial hub. The city was mostly uh, built and developed in the 18th and 19th century, and and this is the face of Odessa. That it's it's its heritage. And um, obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine became a moment when um, even those Ukrainians who were pro-Russia and Russian speakers, and I don't know, had family connections to Russia or identified themselves with Russia in some ways, it was a moment of reckoning for them. Because these days, what we they hear is uh, Vladimir Putin telling them, well, you're Russian speakers, you, we need to protect you because those Ukrainian nationalists are going to go and trample on your heritage and bar, bar you from speaking Russian at home, which obviously never, but was never the case. And yes, it never is. And in that sense, one of the greatest examples of, of how mood in, in Odessa has changed is uh, the Odessa mayor Gennady Truhanov. A very controversial figure, very well known for his pro-Russian views to the point that someone was going to investigate him for treason. There was there were suggestions that he holds a Russian passport, that he's a bit too friendly, especially after the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and Russia's involvement in eastern Ukraine. And uh, Truhanov has been a mayor for quite a while, and there were calls to uh, pull down the monument to Catherine the Great for quite some time. And all of those years, he was saying, you know, this is this is not going to happen. This is our history. We are Odessites. We are not Russians, but she's the founder of the city. You know, we have to respect that. And the, mom- the, the monument that we're talking about, um, it, it, there was a historical statue which was which was built at the end of the uh, 19th century to mark the centennial of the founding of Odessa. Uh, but the original statue was pulled down in 1920 by the Bolsheviks. And the statue was destroyed. It was never to be found. And then a new statue was put uh, on on the same old pedestal in 2007. Um, as a symbol of the city, as, as, as a way to, to restore this postcard view of Odessa. And that's one of the central and beautiful squares that you can find in Odessa. And just as the war started, Mayor Tsukhanov, you know, changed his mind and changed his ways, just like a lot of people in Odessa. And there was a renewed movement to remove the monument as a symbol of the Russian rule, as a symbol of Odessa's imperial past that allows Putin to go around and saying that this belongs to us. And Putin actually, as recent as the end of October was talking about Odessa, saying that you know, look at that—they have the monument to Catherine the Great 
in the city center, do you need any more proof that this is ours, that this belongs to Russia? And for many Ukrainians, pulling down this monument means that you're essentially, you're removing one of the arguments that Putin might have to, you know, to, in, in his claims on Odessa. And of course, that, that that's obviously, that's, that's quite a painful page in uh, Odessa's history, but it just shows how, um, how angry and resentful people are because, you know, we're talking about 10 months of, uh, 10 months of war. Odessa has been spared the worst fighting, the worst missile strikes or uh, massacres that we saw on the outskirts of Kiev, for example. But it has suffered a lot, especially in suburbs. Blackouts are quite common. And of course, everyone knows someone who's died on the, on the front. So um, it is happening around the time that anything connected with Russia is toxic. And actually, a lot of people living in Odessa who spoke Russian all of their lives are now um, switching to speak Ukrainian as, as a way that to show that, you know, Russia is not welcome here and we belong in the Ukrainian state and we're going to support it by, by speaking this language that maybe they uh, wouldn't speak, you know, among themselves before they started the war. Really fascinating. Thank you for that. What do you think, if anything, this vote means of the sentiment that Odessa's residents are feeling towards Russia, how has that changed? Well, that's uh, that's totally predictable because, as I've said, we're talking about 10 months of a genocidal war and anyone who was friendly to Russia in the past and uh, local residents who previously were, were able to say that, you know, okay, we hate Putin, but we don't hate Russians because we know it's it was Putin's decision to annex Crimea or it was Putin's decision to originally meddle in Eastern Ukraine. Um, and it's it, Russians don't have to be responsible for that. And now, because Ukrainians are not seeing the sort of pushback from Russia's decimated civil society, they are understandably angry and upset, and they want to erase all of the memory and everything that, that's connected to Russia, be, be it past or present. Interesting. Thank you for that, Natalia. Before we go, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with, or would you like to point them in the direction of the paper or the website mm-hmm. or any articles that you have coming up? Sure. Um, I mean, Venetia spoke about missile strikes uh, this morning, and obviously this was something to be expected. And for a large part of the Western world where, you know, Christmas is over, obviously that's that's the main holiday in the West. But in Ukraine, it's the New Year's Eve. That's the main holiday. And this is the time when the family gathers around the table. And that's the main holiday of the year. And of course, there are fears that Russia will try and disrupt it once again. We saw those strikes this morning, which obviously came just two days before New Year's Eve. And um, there's fear that there might be another missile strike whose sole purpose would be to scare Ukrainians into submissions and I don't know, come begging Vladimir Zelensky to sit down for talks with Putin so that they they can have their um, New Year's Eve dinner, which is obviously it's not going to happen. We we don't see any um, any movements on the ground. Ukrainians, uh, those missile strikes, if anything, they are uh, making Ukrainians even angrier. There is still, um, I mean, there are still all those war restrictions uh, on, on, on residents. There is curfew. So no one is allowed out in the streets after 11 in the evening, as far as I get. So there won't be any fireworks. There won't be um, jubilant crowds on the streets uh, for New Year's Eve. But 
yeah, people are going to try and celebrate for as much as they can, as long as Russians are not um, sending missiles on them on New Year's Eve. Before Christmas, we asked you to send in your thoughts as we head into the new year. Here's a selection of those messages, starting with Kendra in Texas. Howdy, Telegraph. My name is Kendra, and I'm from Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm a regular listener to the Ukraine podcast, and I really want to appreciate all the work that you guys have done. You've really educated me on Ukraine, on military information that I need to hear, and also giving me so much empathy for the Ukrainian people. I've donated to some of the places and organizations that you've uh, had on the podcast, including some of the folks that are trying to provide aid. I'm also now a huge fan of Kristaps Anderson, who is Eastern Border Podcast. So thank you so much for that. I want to tell you guys, I really appreciate all the work you've done, just trying to cover this on a day-to-day basis. I am not a disengaged American. I am a very highly engaged American, caring about what's going on in Ukraine and in Europe. And I just want to tell you, keep doing the great work. We appreciate you, and thank you so much. Happy holidays, and a happy new year. Hello, this is Vlastimil from Czech Republic. I want to thank you for your podcast, Ukraine The Latest. During that time, it has become my main source of information about this conflict, and I am following your broadcast daily. I really appreciate thoughtful and thorough insights into this whole terrible war by your reporters and your guests. Please, keep on inviting Ukrainians so they are heard in their own voices. I also want to say my special thanks to Dominic Nichols, as his tiny side jokes sit very well with me, and they are bring some light into this dim subject. Uh, but I want to thank all of you for all the great work you are doing. Ciao. Hi, my name is Anne, and I'm listening to your daily podcasts from Christchurch, New Zealand. And I just want to say a, a huge Merry Christmas to you all, and thanks so much for your informed news regarding Ukraine and the war. Just go the Ukrainians. It's a frightening thought of, Putin wins this war and um, it is a real fight for democracy and um, a scary one. We're looking at a Christmas that's beautiful, sunny and warm and I very much feel for the Ukrainians where many of them will have a cold, bleak Christmas. So let's hope 2023 is a turning point for them and uh, they win. Thanks so much once again for your podcast. Hi, my name is Jeff. I've been listening to your podcast, I think, from the beginning. I live in the Philadelphia area of the United States, and I don't think I've listened to a podcast every day as much as I have yours. In fact, I I have no idea what any of you look like, but at this point, I just have this image in my head of what you all look like because I've heard your voices so many times. In particular, a couple of stories of have really struck me over the over the several months that I've been listening. And one was uh, in November, Joe Barnes telling the story of Kiwi Ree when they blocked the runway. I don't know why that one just stuck with me. Just the power of people coming together. Some of Roland's stories talking to uh, various folks along the way. And then of course, Dom with his, with his military knowledge, always explaining the right bank of the river. Love it. Thank you for all you do. We really do appreciate it, and I've learned an absolute ton. Thank you.
Happy holidays. Hello, The Telegraph UK. This is Hannah in Hampshire. I listen to your podcast every day on my way home from work or if it's not quite been posted yet um, when I get home. I listen to it because it's really important to know what's going on. And the mainstream news doesn't tell us what's going on in Ukraine. I think the first reason that I want to know is because at the very beginning of the war you saw Ukrainians in the underground in bunkers and it was just like you would imagine World War Two, and it was just like you would imagine we resisted British people resisted in World War Two. I admire the Ukrainian people they're amazing and um I want to know what's going on and I admire your podcast greatly. So thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Matthew Williams.